Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, June 1st, 2020. Can you guys believe it's already June? Or for some of you, oh my gosh, it's only June. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Uh, this is Talk Nerdy, and I'm the host, Kara Santa Maria. We've got a great episode coming up, but before we dive into it, I want to thank those of you who continue to make Talk Nerdy possible each and every week. And I know that right now is a really tough time. And so, of course, if you're not in a position to support the show, or even if you were a previous supporter and you're no longer able to, I um, I highly urge you to do what you need to do um, and not give any extra money over to Talk Nerdy. Um, but for those of you who can and do, I want to thank you um, for you know the way that you've continued to help Talk Nerdy keep going. Uh, the show is free to download. I do sell some ad space, but I would never have a subscription model where you have to pay to be able to access the show. And that's really because those of you who can afford to and those of you who want to kind of help offset that cost for everyone else. Um, so I want to thank the top supporters this week. They include Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva. And Mary, I just want to take a second to thank you so much for your lovely and beautiful note. I record this on um, on the week prior to it going to air. So I just received your note now and I haven't even had a chance to email you back. Um, it'll feel like time travel because you might have heard from me by the time you hear this. But thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Um, it was just so meaningful. It kind of brought a tear to my eye. Um, I also want to thank Christopher Pitts. I want to thank a new supporter, June. Also, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Brian Holden, of course, Daniel Lang, and J uh, David J.E. Smith. Sorry about that. Thank you guys so, so much. All right. So, this week, we've got a new episode with a wonderful author. She's a, a freelance writer who's been doing this for quite some time. She mostly does narrative nonfiction, and she's written for a ton of outlets, um, Outside, Wired, Pacific Standard, Grantland, The Walrus, Canadian Geographic, uh, Hawkeye Magazine. She's also from Canada and does a lot of really great outdoor adventure stuff, travel, sports, and the like. But her newest book is a little bit of a turn, and it's absolutely fascinating. It's called Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. So, of course, we talk about what it is to be afraid, what's actually happening, and what some of the treatments are for various um, phobias and how they work a little bit. So, guys, without any further ado, here she is, Eva Holland. Well, Eva, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm super excited to talk about your new book, Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. I'm also excited to talk all about your, you know, path into not just journalism, but now science journalism and, um, you know, all of the kind of personal sort of, it's like science meets um autobiography a little bit. And I always love these kinds of very personal science books because I think they, they're so much more relevant to the reader than just like straight science reporting. So, oh, so much to get into. Um, a, welcome to the show. And B, where are we connecting from today? I am in Whitehorse, which is the small capital city of the Yukon Territory in northern Canada. So I'm about uh, 100 miles from the Alaska border north of British Columbia. 
Oh, wow. And I'm on the same um, time zone, I think, but much farther south in Southern California in Los Angeles. It is like really hot outside. We use Fahrenheit in the US. I don't know if you do in Canada, but it's like almost 90 degrees today. Is it? I assume it's not that warm where you live. It is not that warm here, but we are consistently staying above freezing at night now. So spring is spring is here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, I know that it's been really tough to coordinate um, interviews and things during this um, global lockdown, during this pandemic. I also know that almost every person that I've had on the show recent, in most recent weeks is like, ah, it's so fun to publish a book when nobody can go outside. <laughs> but has, how has it been for you, like doing the book tour? I mean, I know you can't go and give your public talks like you were probably hoping to, but um, has it been interesting kind of like doing virtual book tours and, and getting the word out online? It has. Yeah, it's been really heartening, I think, to see how people have come together and been like support bookstores, support authors, you know, like. I was a bit worried that people would be like, there's a pandemic. Nobody cares about your book right now. You know, like stop making a big deal about something irrelevant. Um, you know, it feels a little self-conscious to be promoting something at this time, but, but people have been so supportive of being like, no, it matters that your book is coming out now and we want to support you. So it's been really, it's been really cool. I have learned so much about so many different video and audio platforms. You know, I have done Zoom events and Instagram live events and Facebook live events and Skyped into TV shows. And um, it's, it's been, it's been an adventure for sure. <laughs> I love that. And you know, the truth is, uh, your book is actually in a weird way, like really relevant right now, because it really does tackle this idea of fear being very helpful, you know, and like necessary in certain situations, but also when run amok, it can actually be pretty psychologically damaging. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that transition from sort of like fear to long-term anxiety during this extended period. Like there's, you know, a healthy concern and maybe even fear about, you know, being smart to not get sick. And if you do get sick, knowing the right things to do. But then also when taken to ex an extreme, it can be pretty psychologically damaging to, to just be kind of like, I don't know, existing in a state of fear all the time around the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... It's definitely been a, a time to reflect on some of the research that I did and to sort of see it playing out in real time around me, you know, to have to have read about sort of, you know, the damage that sort of long, long durations of stress do to our systems. Um, and then mm -hmm. to see to see people living that is um, I mean, it's it's sad and it's scary, but it's also kind of there's a level on which it's been sort of fascinating. Absolutely. So I want to know, before we get into the content of your book, I want to know a little bit about your history. So you are a, I've been reading a lot, like a long form journalist. So you tend to write long, like what's the difference between a long form journalist and I don't know, most of the journalism that we're pretty familiar with? Sure. So I basically almost always write features, typically magazine features or magazine style features for web outlets. Um, I've never really done daily news um, or faster turnaround stuff. I was um, like a blogger years ago, and that was sort of the fastest turnaround stuff I did. Um, 
was kind of like blogging news and trends for not like a personal mm-hmm. blogger, but um, you know, the kind of the, the, the web of old where people sort of aggregated um, the news and, and trends and, and interesting bits and bobs of the day uh, for their audience. Um, I guess what we call curators now. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, I, I focus on longer narrative style pieces, I guess would be, would be the thing. And so these would be pieces that usually have um, like a fair amount of reporting that's associated with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not really an essayist. I have done some personal essays as well, but my my primary work is reported narrative features. And sometimes I'm in them, and there's a personal component, and sometimes they're pure sort of third person um, reporting. And so, you know, before this book, or maybe before more recent work, um, you had mentioned that you weren't really doing science writing, like that you're pretty new to science writing. So what kinds of um, areas, like what was your beat, um, you know, throughout your career? Mm -hmm. Um, I started in the travel world. I didn't go to journalism school and travel writing seemed like the easiest way to sort of break into the industry without a degree or reporting expertise. Um, So I started in, in travel, writing some personal travel essays and some, you know, service travel journalism, destination pieces, that sort of thing. And then I moved from there into when I got into feature writing, a lot of what I wrote about, partly because of where I live and partly because of my background, was somewhere on the sort of wilderness, outdoor adventure, extreme sports spectrum. Um, That led to more sports writing. Uh, So I did uh, a fair amount of sports work for a while. And then the wilderness, outdoor adventure stuff sort of naturally led into writing about the environment, environmental issues, um, resource and extraction projects in the north you know a lot of my work is in the north american arctic and that eventually is what led me into more more typical science journalism um but it took sort of a while to get there oh, i love that i mean it really is kind of a natural path but of course a i don't know quote unquote non-traditional path if there really is a traditional path to science journalism these days um i love that that's really cool so are you still kind of into these more like wilderness sports and um like these outdoor um experiences yeah it's a big part of my personal life and a big part of my professional life too um i'm a correspondent for outside magazine and they're one of my main outlets that i publish with so i still do a lot of that kind of stuff as well um it's nice. still really fun yeah not right now What's your favorite because- stuff? <laughs> yeah i know right now it's so hard because it's like you want to find the balance of being respectful of other people but also like getting outside when you can just to like not lose it um indoors but let's say that we were not in a global pandemic what's what kind of stuff is your favorite um what are your favorite experiences outside um i'm primarily a hiker i that's partly because of a lack of experience in some other areas that require more gear and and technical ability and partly just Mm -hmm. preference. Um, but I've done some, some longer distance paddling trips, uh, on rivers up here, you know, like for a week or 10 days on a river. Um, I've gotten a little bit into climbing as I talk about in my book, uh, more as therapy than, than anything else. Um, um, yeah, and I I'm getting into mountain biking here. I haven't done like a bike packing or cycle touring trip yet, but I'd love to. Uh, so yeah, mostly try to I try to get on a river trip and uh, a hiking trip every summer. Do you usually do those with big groups? Like lately, I've been thinking, and of course, I live in Southern California, and I'm like, yes, I hike, but that is uh, a 
I don't know. Like when I say I hike, it's probably very different than when other people say that they hike because Southern California is beautiful and amazing and we have hiking trails everywhere. But I think my difficulty level is minimal. Um, But I love to camp. And lately I've been thinking about doing some like independent camping, like just me and my tent and, you know, probably my car, like car camping, um, maybe my telescope and my dog and just going out not with a partner, not with friends and being in nature alone. And there's like a a fear aspect to it, which we'll get to, but also it's something very liberating about that. Have you ever done these kind of like independent outdoor um, experiences? Yeah, I did my first solo backcountry overnight trip to celebrate my 30th birthday a few years ago. Um, And I'd done a handful since. And then last summer I did my first kind of longer trip by myself. I did five days and four nights hiking alone. And it was, I was, I was like, am I going to be scared? And am I going to be lonely? And I wasn't, it was amazing. Um, I did, you know, I was on a, an established route. So I did sort of sometimes share a meal with people at the picnic bench or whatever at the campsite. But, um, uh, no, it was, it was great. I did find it liberating and I would encourage you to try it. Oh, I love that. Okay, next book. Um, All right. So let's talk a little bit about Nerve, Adventures into the Science of Fear. So this, you know, really does have um, a personal story to it. And the sort of research that you did and the reporting that you did on science was inspired by, um, you know, a very intense and uh, difficult life experience that kicked a lot of things off. So um, I would love if you're comfortable for you to tell us a little bit about like what happened to you in your life and kind of where you decided to go from there. Sure. So the path to this book started uh, when my mom died suddenly from a stroke in the summer of 2015. I was actually on a backcountry canoe trip um, when that happened and had to be sort of evacuated to get to the hospital before we turned off life support. Um, Mm -hmm. And for complicated reasons uh, that I explained in the book, um, my mom's death had, the possibility of my mom's death had always really hung over me. Um, She had lost both her parents when she was young. And I had grown up very aware of, of the damage those losses had incurred on her. And I was really afraid of the same thing happening to me. It was, it was, you know, if, if you had asked me, what's your biggest fear, I would have said my biggest fear is my mom dying. If I was going to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so that was really devastating, of course. And it was, it was frightening because I thought, well, here's the thing I've always dreaded and it's happening. And now I'm going to be harmed, you know, in the same ways that she was. And after a few months of, of pretty acute grief, I, I came out the other side, um, still grieving, but, but aware that I was not, in fact, going to be have sort of the same lingering um, trauma that my mom had had from losing her parents when she was young. Um, mm-hmm. And there was this empowerment to that of saying, oh, I've, I've lived through my worst fear and I survived and it wasn't you know, I I miss my mom every day, but it wasn't as bad as I thought. I don't have the kind of like lifelong depression and stuff that she was left with. Um, and so I had been struggling with a fear of heights for several years before that, um, sort of, uh, fitfully attempting to overcome it, but not really in any systematic or, or consistent way. And then more recently I had had a series of car accidents and uh, had been left with some issues while driving, particularly in winter conditions, uh, which is a problem when you live in a place with eight months of winter. 
(laughs) and no public transit. So, um, so I decided in early 2016, I said, okay, you faced your worst fear and survived. Maybe you should try facing your other fears now and try to understand what's happening to you and see if you can fix it. And so that was the genesis of the book. Initially, it was a personal project. Um, I had a panic attack uh, on an ice climbing trip a few months after my mom died and was like, it was worse than anything I had ever experienced before. And I just thought that's, that's not, this is not an acceptable level of, of response of of reactivity, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. um, so I decided to try to fix it. And that included trying to understand what was happening. And then it it evolved into the book project uh, a couple months after that ice climbing trip. So when you had that initial um, panic attack, had you ever had a panic attack before? I think so, but I didn't know it at the time. I had had, I had had at least two other, at least two other really notable heights related freakouts, as I would have called them, where mm-hmm. I was convinced I was going to die and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't move. And I was sort of informed years later after the fact that that's basically what a panic attack is. Um, but I had never right. thought of it in those terms before. I just, I was, I called them, you know, like my meltdown, my freak out. And I, and I tried to not think about them because I found them very embarrassing. Um, Isn't it amazing that, you know, I think so many people have, it's almost kind of like starting your period in like the 19. 19- tens or something like because nobody talks about it you have this like really extreme experience when you have your first panic attack if you are unlucky enough to have one where you literally don't know what's happening and you almost like try to minimize it but this overwhelming sense like i'm going to die is uh, i mean that sheer terror that's like that's what your book is about you know this idea it's like pure fear And the fact that it's actually pretty common, but so few people know what's happening when it happens. It's odd. Yeah. Yeah. It took, for me, it took a friend who had been dealing with more generalized anxiety issues for years to sort of tell me, I was telling her a story and she said, Eva, that was a panic attack. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have the language. I didn't have the awareness of, I just knew that this unpleasant thing had happened yeah deeply unpleasant yeah unpleasant is an understatement <laughs> seriously it's kind of like unless you're in the world of psychotherapy you're sort of in the world of mental health and aware of like what that entails yeah you are sort of unfortunately in the dark about a lot of those things which can be like super <laughs> scary um <laughs> there's that like negative feedback like it's scary while it's happening and then it's even scarier because you don't know what's happening to you. I actually have a friend who for years was experiencing, I'm I'm not sure if it would qualify. Well, it probably actually would qualify for as panic attack, but these like acute anxiety kind of experiences. And she called it like her breathing thing. Like she's like, I just have this thing where my chest gets really tight and I can't breathe. And I'm like, I think that's like anxiety. But a lot of people, you know, you'll go to the doctor, which is good to do, but you'll go to the doctor and make sure you don't have a heart condition and there's, you know, nothing wrong with your blood and blah, blah, blah. Uh, just to make mm-hmm. sure because that's really what it feels like it feels medical absolutely yeah and so okay tell me about this then tell me about this real transition from experiencing this lifelong worry getting through it um which it's interesting to me that the first kind of fear that you mention is the fear of losing mom because Obviously, that is a fear. And for some people, it's the, you know, in existential psychology, 
um, there's a theory, and this is like what I study in school, there's an idea that there are four like givens of existence, these four core givens that drive everybody's um, kind of treatment. If you find yourself in psychotherapy, it's probably at its core because of one of these four things. And one of those four things is fear of death, that it's like a very deep rooted existential terror that, you know, most of us are endowed with. But the funny thing is, I think we often think of losing a loved one as not a fear-based experience, but more of a like, we, we categorize it in the depression category, not in the fear category for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. And I, I, I've never sort of known for sure if if that fear of death is supposed to be just about our fear of our own deaths. I've always mm-hmm. worried more about other people. You know? Right. Yeah. And I think there is some crossover, you know, a lot of people might assume or make the jump and I don't know rightly or wrongly that losing other people is a reflection our, on our own m- mortality. And But it's also complicated psychologically because it's, as you mentioned, a fear, like an actual fear, but it's also combined with a, a grief and loss and sadness and depression and numbness and all those other really complicated emotions kind of coalesce in that experience. Mm-hmm. People treat grief like it's a synonym for sadness, but it's it's sadness, it's anger, it's fear, it's, you know, it's a, it's a complicated, complicated place to be in. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's funny though, to like kind of compare or juxtapose this idea of like fear around loss and fear around mortality and, and really fear around losing love or comfort or, you know, um, the caregiver, like everything that that um, encapsulates, and then something that's a more classic kind of phobia, like a fear of heights, where it, people point to that and they go, okay, that's like what I think of when I think of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, phobias are really the classic in most people's minds. I think people think of fear of sharks or the fear of spiders. Um, and those are really real and they can be really debilitating for lots of people but i think they're sort of less all encompassing in our lives than than some of the more existential existential fears that we um maybe don't categorize as as clear cut fear in the same way mhm and so i'd love to hear about your experiences um around heights because i'm afraid of heights in the in the traditional sense like i would not say that i have a phobia i don't think that i've ever had to change my behavior and i've never been I've never found myself ruminating or been in an experience where it was affecting my life negatively. But when I have been on very, very high kind of precipices or like, you know, things that are sort of like, like big swaying bridges and things Mm -hmm. like that, I'm like, oh, wow, this is horrifying. Like I do, but I've always kind of told myself, well, that's a survival mechanism. Like everybody should be afraid to some extent here, but Mm -hmm. I don't know what it means for it to translate into the kind of phobia world. Is this something that you had been dealing with your entire life? Like, what was it like? Yeah, it took me a long time to see the pattern. I didn't think of myself as someone who was afraid of heights for quite a long time for, you know, more than 10 years after my first heights related panic attack. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it was very, mine was very specific. And I should say, um, I have not been diagnosed with a phobia. And, And one of the therapists I talked to said that she thought because of my, even though I have these very intense reactions, um, 
my capacity to sort of move through them would make mm-hmm. me subclinical rather than fully clinical. But yeah. certainly an, an extreme, I have, I have had extreme reactions to, to heights. And so the pattern for me was that I eventually figured out after many years was a sense of exposure. So I've always, it, it, it took me a long time to say I'm afraid of heights because I was fine in airplanes and I was fine in elevators, mm-hmm. even glass elevators. I was fine um, generally on bridges or balconies as long as I uh, didn't feel like I could fall. But it was this sense of exposure. If I felt like I could trip over my own feet and fall over the railing, or if I was on yeah. a steep slope, or any sensation of dangling, um, anything like that is what what triggered me. And so it took me a while to put the pieces together. And it didn't really happen until I moved to the Yukon and was spending time in mountains regularly for the first time in my life. Um, hmm. That I understood that steep terrain was upsetting to me on a, on a sometimes a pretty extreme level. Right. And so how did that kind of play in around this same time when, you know, you were losing your mom and you were really starting to realize that there were certain aspects of your life that were, I don't know, what what's a good way to put it, like holding you back? Yeah, I felt confined by it. Yeah, I felt like it was making my life smaller than I wanted it to be. Um, hmm. You know, there were professional considerations, um, you know being afraid to be in the mountains when you write for outside magazine is slightly problematic. Um, <laughs> there were personal considerations. My, this is what my friends do. They hike and they climb and they mountain bike. And, and if I wanted to participate in that, I had to figure this out. And I, I didn't, this is, there's always the question of like, to what extent is avoidance? Okay. You know, and I think mm-hmm. everybody has to make the call on that themselves and determine at what point your your fear is impairing you to a level that isn't acceptable to you in your life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a clear cut line. You know, a, a lot of people have asked me like, "Why did you put yourself through this? Why not just not go up a mountain?" You know, and for some people, the calculus on avoiding mountains would be different if if uh, if they didn't have those same personal and professional considerations and if they didn't live where I live then maybe they could just avoid the things that trigger them. And I think that's, that's okay if that's your calculus. Uh, but for me, it felt like I was giving up too much. Hmm. Yeah. Was it really, was it just heights or, you know, I mean, I, sometimes I think it's a taxonomy that's maybe a little bit arbitrary, kind of like these constructs that we develop that say, okay, this is the issue and I'm going to categorize it perfectly with clean edges. Um, but like, the concept of going up the mountain was it the specifically the the fear of the heights that was really eating away at you or were was there like a combination of fears that you were um that you were facing yeah it's a combination of heights and i think a fear of falling and the possibility of falling and then also speed factors mm. into it too like the the worst thing for me was moving downhill rapidly <laughs> Um, so I was usually okay on the uphill, but I had to be careful not to climb up to a point that I then felt unable to descend from. That's, that's been a problem a few times is like coming down is always scarier for me because it, it, Mm -hmm. it feels more like you could fall forward. You could fall head over heels. Um, so yeah, I wasn't actually sure if it's really a fear of heights or a fear of falling. I think it's a bit of both. Um, and yeah, with speed being a variable in there too. (laughs) 
Fair. Yeah, absolutely fair. And so I'd love to like maybe get into that a little bit. Like what was this kind of self-induced or self-developed exposure therapy that you um, that you experienced and really uh, fleshed out in your book? Right. So the first thing I did after I decided to figure this thing out is I went skydiving. Um, of course you did. <laughs> Because uh, how better to combine height, speed, and falling? Um, (laughs) um, That, as it turns out, it turns out that the shock and awe approach to exposure therapy is not the recommended course of action. Um, Good to know. Yeah. This will shock you as as somebody studying clinical therapy, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, It didn't, I don't think it did me any harm, um, Mm. but it didn't, it sure didn't help. Um, and I, I did not enjoy it at all. I guess I, I knew it wouldn't fix all my problems. I guess I hoped I might demonstrate to myself that I could do more than I thought. I, I knew I wouldn't enjoy the free fall, but I, I had hopes that I might enjoy the descent under the parachute once it was open. You know, people were like, it's the best. You just float down so gently. It's the world is below you. It's amazing. You know, and I, no, I didn't enjoy a single second of that Mm. experience. Um, so that was not helpful except I guess insofar as demonstrating to me how much work I had to do. Um, and then I enrolled myself in a program of a more traditional approach to exposure therapy, but, but a DIY exposure therapy through learning to rock climb. All right, everyone, I want to take a quick break to thank a new sponsor this week, Nature. It's a tough time out there. You know, we are living through a historical global pandemic that has really upended life as we know it. And I know that so many people right now are desperate to understand what's happening. We want the latest in global science research, what is happening at the cutting edge. And the best way to do that is to subscribe to Nature. It's the world's foremost international weekly scientific journal. It's been around, guys, since November of 1869, and it publishes the very latest discoveries in science. Um, We're talking, you know, journal articles, award-winning news, leading comment and expert opinion on all sorts of things that are important. Nature offers 51 weekly print issues and online access to current issues and also archived issues as far back as 1997. And for June and July, as a talk nerdy listener, you get a really, really special deal. So listen up. You can stay informed on the latest peer-reviewed research, news, and commentary in both science and technology at 50% off of the original price. All you've got to do is visit go.nature.com slash nerdy to subscribe. You'll save 50% on your yearly subscription. This is where I get my science news, and I think it's where you're going to want to also. So again, that's go.nature.com slash nerdy for 50% off your yearly subscription. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Okay, so so you went you went a little too hard, and then you backed up a bit, and then you yeah. kind of iterated from there. Yeah, I dialed it back a little, and I, it, to say I tried to learn to rock climb to cure my fear of heights still sounds fairly extreme. But um, you know, in the climbing world, the beginner the beginner level is like you're on what called what's called top rope. 
So there's there's a rope already secured above you and you're you're never climbing without that. And so I was never going to fall more than a foot or two if I fell. I was never more than, you know, 20 feet off the ground. Often I was 5 or 6 feet off the ground. Um and so it was it was a fairly contained relatively safe way to approach this, but it was also guaranteed to trigger me pretty strongly. Um, right, right. And so I tried, I just, I worked from a workbook that I picked up um, and I tried to just, you know, where before if I had tried to climb or tried to hike into steep terrain, I, I would push, 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 push. And I would just try to sort of break through the fear or, or hang, you know, sort of grit my teeth and get through it. And, and what I learned is that you're actually not supposed to be just in a continuous freak out. You're supposed to, uh, it's, you're supposed to, to learn to remain calm and that's, that's the ticket. So I tried to let go of any sense of, of ego and pushing myself and just, you know, if I freaked out with two feet off the ground, then I would, then I would try to come down before I reached that point and then try to go three feet next time without freaking out and then try to go four feet next time without freaking out. Um, and it worked to an extent. I did. I did make some some improvements over that that summer of of trying. Did you like as you decided that you wanted to start on this kind of path and this journey? Uh, you said that you were utilizing a workbook. Did you? I mean, along the way, were you consulting psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists? Is this something that you more did after the fact to kind of like um, maybe post hoc learn a little bit about what your experience was like? Like, how how were you informing your yourself? Um, I guess scientifically during this journey. Yeah, at this early stage, I was I was winging it a fair bit. Um, I I had so this was the summer of 2016, about a year after my mom died. I did the skydive early in the summer, and then I spent the rest of that summer and early fall working on this climbing project. And at that point, I was not speaking to scientists or or, mm-hmm. or therapists. I was I was uh, working from this anxiety and phobia workbook, and I was doing a bit of reading. Um, and then it was a bit. I guess I got. I did get um, a magazine assignment uh, to write about this exposure therapy effort for Esquire. And so I did um, start to read some journal articles, but I think that was more in the fall. I think I maybe completed the climbing before I started to read more about um, acrophobia and the studies that have been done on it and, and exposure therapy. I did speak to Edna Foa, who I guess is kind of a legend in her field. Um, and, uh, had been one of the originators of, of what she calls prolonged exposure therapy. Uh, but I didn't speak to her in a, in a patient capacity. I just interviewed her about the history of this, this treatment she had, um, developed. And it wasn't until later in, in the process more recently that I started to, um, actually work with clinicians. And, uh, and as it turned out, you know, that was really a helpful thing to do. (laughs) Right. And so is that sort of like when you say more recently or later that you started to work with clinicians, you mean like in a personal um, mental health capacity, not in a kind of journalistic capacity? Right. Yeah. I um, well, I I did both, but not. So this this early rock climbing effort was in 2016, but then I didn't get my book contract until April 2018. And so it wasn't until late 2018, early 2019, that I was interviewing neuroscientists and psychologists for the book, and also mm-hmm. undergoing um, treatments with actual therapists for also yeah. for the book. 
Interesting. I mean, it's it's such a it's so funny to me as somebody kind of coming from the um, mental health world who, you know, now it's like my career and my education, but I have been in therapy since I was like a child. And so the experience of therapy and the, um, I don't know, kind of like being entrenched in that and like knowing the lingo and like being comfortable around shrinks and stuff like that is so like second nature to me. But of course, I know that in American society, there's a lot of stigma and there's like a distance um, for a lot of people. And so the idea of kind of like self-help first, which I'm sure is what most people's um, most people's experiences is like, it feels very like foreign and alien to me. I mean, was it difficult doing a lot of this stuff on your own? It was, but, but like you said, I, I didn't even, you know, I think I would have thought that I would be laughed out of a therapist's office if I was like, you know, I'm really scared huh. of heights, you know, like it didn't seem like a serious enough problem to me, you know, that we, we talk ourselves out of these things all the time, right? We minimize our own, our own entitlement to help really. And, and there's yeah. also, you know, I'm, I'm in Canada, so I, I do have, um, uh, medical as in physician care covered, but, but mental health is not covered. So mm. being a freelance writer, um, you know, therapy would be something that was out of pocket for me. And so it was not something I did until I had a book contract to fulfill. Um, yeah, right. it's, it's a funny, it's a funny calculus that we make. And I had never, I had had uh, a couple of really limited experiences with counselors when I was younger that I, I hadn't found particularly useful. And so I guess I was kind of skeptical of the whole project. It was actually my mom's death that, that changed that, I think, and made me more open to that kind of support because uh, we have this wonderful organization here called Hospice Yukon that among other things offers free grief counseling. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was able to see a grief counselor after my mom died uh, for free, which was really, you know, an important piece of the puzzle for me. And, and she was wonderful and really helpful. And I think that kind of opened my mind a bit more to, to the, the importance of seeing a feelings professional. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's, it is true that for a lot of people, I think, um, you know, I often talk about therapy as being kind of like birth control. I, gosh, I keep making these like random like uterus um, uh, <laughs> analogies, but like most girls, if and when they decide to go on birth control, which can be, you know, for some people, a lifelong commitment, uh, you try one or two first that don't really work out. And then eventually you find the one that like doesn't make you feel sick. And, you know, you feel kind of like yourself on and like does the deed and blah, blah, blah. But like for the first few times, I always say it's like musical drugs and, and a lot to a large extent, therapy is the same way because so much of the efficacy of therapy is about your relationship with your therapist. So if you have a bad experience early or just if you don't quite have the right therapist, um, it can kind of turn you off or sour you to the entire experience, which I'm sure is, um, uh, is, is really tough. And then you add to it stigma and, you know, financial constraints and things like that. And um, it's like, it's no wonder a lot of people don't get the benefit of therapy on their first try or even at all in their lives, um, which is so sad. Yeah, I think it's probably not well understood that you might need to try two or three. I think people are more willing Mm -hmm. to give different drugs a try than to say, you know, well, maybe that just wasn't the right. It's, It's a funny thing, I guess, because it's so hard for people to get to take that first step to the first therapist. 
asking for them to try a second, third, and fourth is is a lot too. I don't know. I um, you know, I just remember going to see a counselor when I was a kid when my parents got divorced. My my parents sent me to a counselor, and I just remember thinking like, you know, kids kids are just like, ah, how are you so off the mark? Like, I just remember being told like, it's not your fault. And I, I know that's the classic divorce thing, but (laughs) I never thought my parents getting divorced was my fault. It did not cross my mind. I was like, these people people clearly don't get along well, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so when, when, you know, this, this poor, well-intentioned child psychologist is like, you know, it's not your fault. I was, you know, in my head seven or whatever. And I'm like, oh, this idiot. Like, yeah. Hobbs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of went through that too. Yeah. I had a really bad child psychologist when my parents got divorced too. Also, my parents sent me to a super religious psychologist early on, which was no bueno. Ooh. Yeah. That was really hard for me, not being a believer. So, mm. I mean, that can sometimes be difficult as well. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, how the kind of journey of of not just the like helping professional experience, but also the sort of like, I don't know, I mean, I know it sounds like minimizing, but I don't mean it that way, but the self-help experience, the like mm-hmm. doing your own research, reading and putting yourself in these uncomfortable positions in the hope that over time, you're going to desensitize to the triggers, the fear triggers, um, is such an interesting journal journey. But on top of that, of course, you were looking into the science. So I'm not just talking about the experiential help of being in therapy later on, but like the mm-hmm. actual physical science of like, what is happening to my body? Like, what is going on in my brain when I feel like I'm going to die, even though there's no real, like, tangible risk to my health or safety? Yeah, I wanted to understand the mechanisms. I, I'm, I'm curious about that sort of thing generally. And, and I, I just wanted to know, like, what is happening to me? What is happening to all of us? And I didn't, I hadn't previously done any work on the science of emotion. Um, and I really didn't know, like, what do we know about this stuff? It is a relatively young field. Um, and it was really interesting to see what we know and what we don't and, and to try to make sense of that. I was really lucky in that a lot of the work that's been done on the science of emotions more broadly, um, and not fear specific, they, they really often tend to use fear as the example. Um, Mm -hmm. I think because it's so well studied and because everybody gets it, um, it's sort of an easy one to reach for when you're explaining a concept. And so that was really helpful for me because it was like these books had been tailored to my needs. Right. Yeah. It's definitely like, especially from a cognitive behavioral um, therapy perspective, fear is sort of a classic CBT um, diagnosis. Well, I mean, that's not the diagnosis, but like phobias are classic CBT diagnoses or anxiety disorders. And so, and it's just so well studied, this idea of like, this is what's happening. This is exactly how you can approach it. And then this is how you can measure your progress. Um, that you're right, even in some of my courses, and I'm not cognitive behaviorally oriented at all. I'm existentially oriented. So we take a totally different template. But if I have a client who comes in with like a very classic anxiety disorder or like fears, like I'm going to utilize cognitive behavioral therapy because we know it works. Yeah. And, you know, like some of the all time most famous psychological case studies all center around you know, fear and phobias. If you look at little Hans and little Albert, I mean, that was like a, a goldmine for me that, that these, 
these markers. Actually, I think in one of my early drafts, I said like, this was an important milestone in the science of fear. And my editor was like, this was a bigger milestone than just the science. Like this was a milestone in psychology. <laughs> yeah. Period. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny how like, there are also different views. I think that sometimes we become very entrenched within our field, where we have our heroes and we have our benchmarks and things like that. And then of course, when you're incorporating those into like larger conversations where you're like, yeah, Freud, he did some stuff, you know, people yeah. are like, but Freud. <laughs> and then there are other people who are like, damn it, Freud. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, so, I mean, it, has it changed you as a person? I mean, obviously, it's changed your relationship with some of the things that worried you, scared you before. But like, my assumption is, maybe this is not a fair assumption, that you're not just like cured. You're not just like, I love all things and I'm not afraid of anything anymore. <laughs> That's not really the point, right? Right. Yeah, I'm not cured. But I do... I do feel different. You know, one of the things that I told myself this winter, I was having a lot of angst about the book coming out and, you know, is anybody going to read it? Is anybody going to buy it? Is anybody going to like it? You know, are people going to say mean things about me on the internet? All this, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, And the one thing I kept falling back on was I was like, well, you're like, your quality of life is objectively better for having done the work you did to create this book. Um, and so whatever happens with sales and prestige and, you know, mean reviews, uh, you'll always have that. I do. I feel, um, I feel more resilient and, and more aware of my resilience, which, which matters too, you know, to, to know what you can handle. I, I feel better equipped, um, to, to deal with fear and grief in the future, um, yeah, I feel I feel better off. But yeah, certainly not just cured of fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Because I think that that's also a, an important message for a lot of people who are venturing into mental health and these kinds of like experiential treatments is that it's a lifelong journey. Like you are a constellation of everything that has ever happened to you in your life. Your brain works the way that your brain works. And there are things that we can do to temper and to mitigate and to affect change. But it's not the same thing as having an infection. Like your fear didn't happen to you and you can't just like take a pill and now you're fearless. And nor would that be healthy, right? Like it's a, it's a lifelong journey that you are experiencing. And it's like, it's, it's all about getting better every day. And I think that's important because a lot of people go in with maybe unrealistic expectations of what um, mental health treatment, whether it's from a self-help you know, perspective or utilizing um, services, uh, like kind of like what it can offer. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I started this project with the, the, you know, the language that uses like, I'm going to defeat my fears. I'm going to conquer my fears. I'm going to mm-hmm. overcome my fears. And, and the, maybe the biggest revelation for me in the process of working on the book is that fearlessness is not actually desirable. It's, it's, it's dangerous, you know, and, and that fear is something it's, it can, you know, obviously we want to address when it becomes, you know, maladaptive in in the language of neuroscientists, uh, when it, when it's, when it's excessive and when it's impairing our lives, like we've talked about, but, but it's necessary. And, and ultimately I found myself coming to more of like a a peaceful coexistence with fear rather than, uh, rather than a cure 
type of scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe you could give some examples because I'm not sure that, you know, everybody listening might have come across some of this research that shows what happens basically like when you're not afraid. Sure. So the the fear mechanism um, is triggered largely, we think, by a brain structure called the amygdala. And so there's, there's lots of other pieces involved, you know, um, but the amygdala seems to be a key piece of the fear puzzle. And uh, decades ago, uh, a scientist, a researcher, removed the amygdalas from a group of monkeys and then set them loose in the wild. And the amygdalectomized monkeys were all dead within two weeks. Um, more recently, we have a human case study. There's a rare genetic disease called Urbaquita that um, attacks your brain tissue and, and calcifies portions of your brain. And it seems to be particularly fond of the amygdala. So it seems to attack people's amygdalas. And there's a woman um, who's sort of a famous case study in this field, patient SM, whose amygdala is sort of perfectly calcified. Like, you know, in, in, in the language of a, of, of a surgeon, it, the margins are, are perfect. The, the amygdala is sort of perfectly damaged and nothing around it is damaged. So she's sort of a pure experiment in what happens when a person doesn't have an amygdala. And she's, she's sort of medically fearless. And, and she's had a really, really hard life. That was not necessarily what I expected um, when I went into reading about her. But, you know, she's been she's been assaulted, she's been abused, she, um, she sometimes forgets to eat, uh, because she has no sense of, you know, self-preservation, she's bad with money, because she has no sense of consequences, she's had a gun held to her head and didn't flinch, because she really has no, no survival instinct for herself, um, she can be protective of others, which is an interesting distinction, um, but she, she has no, no real notion of, of protecting herself uh, from external stimuli, from, from threats. And, and it's sort of amazing that she's, she's in her mid-late 50s now, I think, and it's sort of amazing that, she's, that, that she even survived adolescence. You know, think about teenagers. It's sort of amazing any of us make it out of adolescence, but imagine if you, if you had no sense of consequences at all. Oh, man. Yeah, that's incredible. And it, it kind of reminds me of, of the research around pain and people who are lacking um, certain pain signals and how difficult their lives are too, because we think, oh, it'd be great to not have any fear or, oh, it'd be amazing to not feel pain. But if you can't feel pain, you can't protect yourself. So these people often die young or they have like these brutal injuries, especially internal ones that they're just like not even aware of because they can't feel them. That's not a good thing. Yeah, no, it's it's a real it's kind of a real reframing of this stuff that we view as negative but that is actually keeping us alive, stuff like pain and fear. Yeah, that's um it's stuff we th- we think of trying to rid ourselves of, but we shouldn't uh we shouldn't wish it away. Absolutely. And of course, it's then it's all about that kind of balance, right? That balance of like having just enough to keep me safe and keep me healthy and keep me alive, but not having so much that it becomes debilitating. And that's really what I think a lot of people who have, you know, what we might call a disorder around fear or anxiety um, in, in a clinical sense are, are working towards is finding that balance. Do you feel like um, through your journey, you've been able to find that kind of balance for yourself? I think I am closer to balance. Yeah. The, and then the trick when you find balance for somebody 
who's dealt with, you know, excessive or, or overreacting uh, fear Mm -hmm. for so long is that you have to learn to trust that balance, you know? Um, Mm. And that can be, that's part of it too. It's not just like you find your way to balance and then things are good. You, when you spent years saying, don't listen, don't listen, don't listen to your fear and your anxiety, then you have to learn once it's, once it's recalibrated, if you're able to recalibrate it, then you, you have to learn to listen to it. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at now is I still, I still expect to freak out. And I, when I'm, when I'm in a height situation and I haven't learned right. yet that it's going to be okay. And I'm, I still expect to freak out when I'm driving and I haven't learned yet that, 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 that reaction is gone now that I've, that I've fixed that, resolved that trauma, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, my guess or my assumption is that you have certain kind of tools now in your in your tool belt that when you are in that kind of moment of expectation and then like a mismatch of experience that you have kind of strategies for how to get through those moments. Yeah, I have some some ways to sort of calm myself and, and recenter if I need to. And it also, it's just, I think, a matter of repetition. I, I still have some avoidant habits and Mm-hmm. And I need to stop avoiding them and, and be shown over and over again that I'm that that it's going to be okay, you know, that I'm not going to panic this time because I I don't do that anymore. And then it's a sort of a learning process from from that perspective as well. Right. And so of course then that leads me to to wonder like what was the experience like? Because this is like a new maybe I'm getting kind of meta here, but another fear that a lot of people really do internalize is like being exposed or like putting themselves out there. And of course, you're sitting here talking about these fears that you have and how you conquered them. And then you're sharing that with the entire world. Like you're exposing yourself on this super deep level. I mean, how has that been for you? Um, It's been okay. Yeah. It's, I haven't had a ton of um, concern about that. I know that probably sounds really weird, but I the whole time I was writing the book, I just chose not to think about the fact that people were going to read it. I didn't, I was like, (laughs) I was like, if you dwell too hard on the fact that this is going to be public, you won't be able to write it. So I just sort of set that aside and worked in my little kind of brain cave. Um, And then, but yeah, as, as publication approached, I had, my fears were mostly professional. It wasn't really like, oh gosh, everybody's going to know about these panic attacks. I, I didn't mm-hmm. feel a ton of embarrassment about what's in the book. I, with the exception of actually the section on my car accidents is, is the one that I still have a lot of kind of shame around. Um, and hmm. I, I, I don't totally know why that is. I guess I haven't, you know, the therapist that I worked with tried to convince me that the accidents weren't my fault and I'm not a terrible driver who's sort of doomed to kill myself or others on the roads. Um, yep. like that was, but, um, I haven't been able to totally let go of that. And there's a little part of me that's kind of like, wow, you really, you're really telling everyone that you crashed this many cars. Good, good job. That's, uh, <laughs> that's great. It's great to have that out there, but interesting. So that's kind of, uh, a, more of a source of shame than, than maybe like, oh, it's, it's very hard for me to be a pot. Maybe there's kind of like a, a cultural, you know, um, pressure there that's different than like oh yeah it's scary to be on a mountain of course like that's not weird but for people to kind of be judging you a little bit about your driving I could see that that would be um 
I don't know, a little more salient maybe. Yeah, I think so. You want to you want to be seen as like a competent adult who can move through the, <laughs> move through the world in a responsible way. You know, like uh, you know, being a good driver is sort of part of being part of society um, in a way that right. being able to rappel off a cliff or whatever isn't. So <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's so true. Oh, that's that's interesting. Like those kinds of comparisons that, I mean, you must've been grappling with throughout the writing. So, so how long did it take for you to, you know, were you writing as you were moving through these experiences or did you kind of reflect back and sit down and write the whole book sort of after, I I mean, after the fact, what does that really mean? There's, you know, it's still going on, but like after you had kind of been through the bulk of it. It was pretty simultaneous. So I got the book deal in April, 2018 and my first draft was due in April 2019. So I had about 11 months to do the first draft. And at that point, I had, um, at that point, I had done the, um, the rock climbing and the skydive for my sample chapters Mm -hmm. for the proposal, but I hadn't uh, done any of the other present present time stuff that's in the book obviously the the memoir portions were in my memories and so i did do a lot of the research and the in the experiential stuff the therapy simultaneously with the writing i would often be writing the memoir portions while researching the science portions i did mm-hmm. my therapy for the car accidents in the summer of 2018 and i was i was sort of writing those up not quite in real time, I would come home from a session and I would take a bunch of notes. And then I think I wrote those sections uh, maybe a couple weeks after I finished the therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to remember. But I, but then I wrote, I think I wrote a section on how the genesis of EMDR sooner. And then I, I maybe wrote the section on sort of the broader history of what we understand of trauma later. Yeah, I did. That was months later, actually, that I wrote that section. So I, I hopped around a bit in the manuscript, depending on what material I had handy. And, and some of it was really down to the wires. So the, the drug treatment for phobias that I did in Amsterdam, um, I did that two weeks before my book deadline. I went to Amsterdam in mid-March, 2019. And it was the final piece of the book aside from the epilogue that I wrote. And I had already written the sections about Dr. Kint's research um, ahead of time before I went to Amsterdam. And then I wrote the sections about my treatment on the plane home. (laughs) Wow. And so did you find yourself like, I don't know, when you were doing this kind of investigative, more like research oriented reporting, even though you had already been through some of these experiences, were there any um, discoveries or like eureka moments that you had where you were like, man, I wish I had known that sooner? Um, I'm trying to remember, you know, in some cases, I sort of kept myself ignorant on purpose. Like I didn't, I didn't want to know too much about EMDR before I did it. Um, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, the therapy I, I did for, for my car accidents, because I didn't want to be overthinking it while I was, while I was in the session, you know, like, Oh, right now she's doing this, that, <laughs> um, right. Too much, too much knowledge. Uh, it, I think it's never a problem for a journalist, but it can be a problem as sort of a patient. I think I didn't want to mm-hmm. be sort of outsmarting myself. Um, or, you know, negating whatever placebo effect I might enjoy or, or anything like that. Um, 
So I'm trying to think if there was something that I wish I had known, wished I had known sooner. Well, in general, I wished I had known more about trauma sooner in my life. Learning, I felt like such a latecomer to that party, you know, reading about, about trauma late. One of the last sections of the book I completed and it was like, it felt like one of those people who discovers an album like three years after it went to number one or something. Like I was like, oh, right. man, <laughs> trauma lives in your body. This is so crazy. Like, um, how come nobody told me trauma lives in my body? <laughs> you know, like, um, uh, yeah, it was sort of a, I guess that comes from sort of not being like a therapy person is that this, this language in this world was so new to me. And I was like, I walked around for like a month being like, trauma explains so much that's happening in the world (laughs) oh my gosh i know (laughs) don't you and you just want to scream it from the rooftops like as you did in your book which is like everybody should know this stuff like we'd be we'd all be getting along so much better yeah (laughs) (laughs) well you know i close my my show asking my guests the same two questions so they're pretty like big picture questions. And so I'm definitely interested in hearing your response um, based on sort of what you do for a living, but also your experiences through writing your book. So um, uh, apologies in advance that they're a bit deep, but are you ready for it? I am as ready as I'm going to (laughs) be. Nice. All right. So when you think about the future in kind of whatever context is relevant to you, so this could be a very personal um, uh, introspection. It could also be something that's a little more like global, geopolitical, social, you know, whatever. Um, it could be relevant to, you know, what's happening in the world right now with regards to the pandemic, or it could be like cosmological um, in whatever context is relevant. I would love to know first, what is the thing that really keeps you up at night? The thing that you're concerned about, you know, worried about, maybe a bit pessimistic about, but then on the flip side of that, um, what are you really genuinely optimistic about? Like, what are you truly looking forward to? So even before the pandemic, probably my my biggest personal worry lately has been the the industry that I work in, you know, journalism and publishing, mm-hmm. and uh, its fate more broadly. And and I worry about my colleagues, and I worry about you know journalism as a as a civic good and, and all that sort of big picture stuff. But also just you know my ability to continue to make a living in this business right. as a full time freelancer. That's something that that hangs over me at all times. And the pandemic has, has certainly amplified that, um, both personally and sort of for the industry at large, it's like, Whoa, this is, this is really bad. Um, and that is, yeah, that's the thing that, that looms largest in is sort of like, am I going to keep doing this? Am I going to be able to keep doing this or will I have to retrain and find another job i I don't know um um and and then you know coupled with that is like what happens to society when there's no more small town newspapers you know um that's all tied up together in a in a ball of anxiety but um but what tied to that is that i really i really feel like i've learned a lot about my own resilience and all of our resilience uh, through working on this book and through what we've seen in this pandemic so far too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the antidote to the thing that hangs over me, I guess, is my awareness of how resilient we all are. And 
not just journalists, but, but everyone. And so I think that keeps me hopeful and it helps me to understand that, you know, if I have to get another job because of the pandemic, then I'll do that. And maybe I'll come back to writing full-time later, or maybe I will find fulfillment, you know, working some other job and, and write on the side. I'll always write, but, um, I'm, I'm finding comfort in my sort of awareness of our resilience these days and, and looking forward to seeing what we do with it and how, how we all come through this. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, Eva, I've learned so much from you. I'm, I'm so excited about your book. I'm so excited that we had the opportunity to talk. I know that those who are listening to the show right now are going to absolutely love it. The book is Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear by Eva Holland. Eva, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Kara. This was really lovely. Absolutely. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Mm-hmm.